Okay. Um, in the name of Allah, most compassionate and most merciful. Um, good evening. Welcome to this very, very special event where I'm joined um, by some extremely special guests uh, uh, on this discussion, post-screening discussion uh, around the Mauritanian. And uh, for those of you who haven't seen the film, I really do urge you to get to see it. It's, it's on general release in the UK on the 1st of April. Uh, but of course, many of you who will be joining us here this evening have seen the film. And uh, uh, I want to then introduce to you our, our uh, people I'll be discussing the, this um, uh, post-screen discussion with. Of course, first and foremost, um, the film is about Mahmoud Ulad Salahi, somebody who was in Guantanamo for 14 years, a Mauritanian or uh, uh, um, national. Um, he's a prisoner, he was a former prisoner. He also authored a book, um, Guantanamo Diary and is the subject of this film. Uh, secondly, uh, there's Steve Wood, who is uh, a former US soldier, who was uh, Mohamedou's guard and uh, friend in Guantanamo, somebody that uh, um, got to know him well, and had uh, is joining us from the United States of America in Oregon. We also have uh, Nancy Hollander, who is a US attorney for uh, she's she's uh, uh, defended two former Guantanamo prisoners, or rather two, one former Guantanamo prisoner and one who's still there, uh, Abdurrahim al-Nashiri. Uh, she helped also to facilitate uh, Mohamedou's book uh, while he was still in prison, and it became a bestseller as a result of it coming out at that time. Uh, she has also represented people like Chelsea Manning, and she was named as one of America's top 50 women litigators by the National Law Journal. And Last but certainly not least, Kevin MacDonald. He's the Academy Award-winning director whose films have included State of Play, The Eagle, Last King of, King of Scotland, and of course, The Mauritanian. So welcome to all of you um, this evening. And um, I'm gonna go straight into it because uh, the last time I spoke to you, Mohamedou, if you remember, uh, that is when we spoke on, um, on the screen, I had asked you, have you seen The Mauritanian? And the response you gave me was, um, I haven't seen it. It's too violent. I only watch comedy movies. Has anything changed since then? So uh, I need to uh, amend uh, that answer. So if you uh, understood that, so I did watch it, but I couldn't watch the violent scenes because they were very real, you know and uh, they were very real to me and i couldn't i couldn't i had just to look away or uh, to, uh, to i couldn't i tried but i couldn't you know even yeah. alone i sat alone and then to keep to the like dialogues and uh, to this point i couldn't watch the violence scenes no i could understand that i can i mean you know, I have to say this, that I, I sat and watched the film um, myself and I was, I was taken back. I've been campaigning against Guantanamo, as you know, for 15 years and talked about this stuff many, many times. But the film took me back, especially because it went to Camp Echo. And I was in Camp Echo for almost two years. And although I never came across you uh, directly, I, I, it, was, it was deja, walking into that, walking into that room was like walking in there with you, like, was like physically being present, was like reminding myself of the first time I saw a lawyer there in 2004. 
Um, so I can only imagine, I can only imagine how, how difficult that must have been, that scene must have been. Uh, but, um, okay, so I, I know the film is, is, is the most important thing that we're discussing today, but I want to talk a little bit around the film. Uh, there's a, a little short film that was done with uh, The Guardian, uh, My Brother's Keeper, that you did with, um, with Steve and Steve was the subject of that. I have been, and I always thought this was quite a, a bit of a lonely journey, but I felt that when I invited former Guantanamo guards over to the UK and met with them and we toured together, we toured, in some cases, we toured the world, uh, or at least some parts of the world, um, I thought that this was unique. And uh, then many, many years passed, many years passed, and then I saw this, what happened with you and with, um, uh, with Steve. So I thought, if this has happened separately to me, completely in a different continent, and you have done this with Steve, what, what possibilities could there be for others? Tell me um, just about that, that reconnecting with Steve. What was the, when was the last time that you had seen him uh, uh, in Guantanamo uh, uh, and then saw him again as a free man? Go ahead. Sorry, I'm so, speaking to you, Mohammed. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I just want, there is something that we didn't do. We didn't introduce Muadham. You know, Muadham <laughs> is a, a UK born citizen and uh, he was kidnapped and tortured just like the rest of us. And uh, what uh, set him apart, you know, that he transcended cultural lines, he transcended like uh, backgrounds. He works with, with everyone. He doesn't care about like your background or your ethnicity. If you work for a human, I interview. And that's really very beautiful. And that sets him apart. And that's an example for me, you know. And uh, so when I came to the room, the first night, it was, August 23rd, 2003. I needed to put this in your head and think where you were. And I came, I was put in build, uh, building number two, Eco Special. And uh, I heard of Eco Special and I heard that was very bad. They called it the torture camp. And I know that, I, don't, I didn't know, know you, but I know that you were that I heard because you were hidden from the rest of us. And uh, I found uh, a used bar of soap, like very small, very thin. That's all that, that had like the orange absurd, nothing else. And, but they forgot to clean up the bar of soap. And I started talking to the bar of soap because it reminded me of life, of someone who was there, someone who used that bar. And I always, when I saw you, I thought maybe this is him, maybe this is Muadam bar, because I started that friendship with that bar also. And uh, you know, this is very natural. There is nothing fake about my friendship with uh, Steve, my brotherhood with him. He came to me and you know, I was very reclusive. I'm not like this. Uh, you know, everybody wants to talk to Muadam. 
and the British guy because they have this sexy British accent. All the girls want to talk to them. I don't have any sexy accent. Anyone who hears my accent, and but like my other big with his British accent and talks like the BBC. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I wanted you know, to keep this serious. <laughs> I think I think some people would disagree about your accent today, though. I can tell you that. <laughs> I was in the cell, and I was very scared, very scared, and very reclusive. I didn't want to talk to anyone. And he came to me. He drinks a lot of coffee. That the first thing he drinks is coffee, you know. And then he came and said. Uh, drink coffee. He was like playing with cats. He always playing with his Edeka cat. You know, I'm not a big coffee drinker, but I said yes, because I didn't want to antagonize him. And then he told me, oh, get out. And then I he was alone in the building. There was no one. And he instantaneously trusted me and he got me out of my without shackles. And he sat me beside him and we started drinking coffee. He said, do you know how to, to play cards? He was still like half asleep. I said, yeah, just teach me. And he taught me Rami. And then the friendship started, you know, like, you know, he, he gave me food. The best thing Mu'adham he gave me is uh, pecan pie. Oh my God, man. If you eat pecan pie, you will be the friend of the United States of America for the rest of your life. <laughs> and uh, that's fantastic. Actually, it wasn't halal because he stole it. Because they, he went to the, uh, he, only, he only was allowed to have a piece, but he got the whole pan. You know, he, <laughs> he took from the, We ate a whole night and we were so hyped. <laughs> we played throughout the night. Wow. wow, that's fantastic. Before I move on to Steve, because I think you know, we've got to get on to Steve straight from there, I just want to tell you a tiny little story, you know, um, I, don't, I don't know if I've told you this before, but there was an American soldier, she was from the US Virgin Islands, and she, one day, she, we, had, we got along very well, she, one day, she bought me a Cadbury's cream egg, okay, and that was contraband, of course, she's not allowed to, to have that. Now, the Cadbury's factory is actually based in Birmingham here. So she said, look what I bought you. And it's all the way from your hometown city. And what she didn't realize, the poor girl, is I hate Cadbury's cream eggs, but I didn't really want her to feel bad. So this was the first time in my life I ate this damn thing because I, I, I never liked the idea of a cream egg. So I ate it and quickly gave her back the wrapper. And I've been in communication with her since this time. And I never had the guts to tell her that I hated that chocolate that you gave me. <laughs> but, you know... Uh, there were some amazing, amazing sort of uh, connections there with different people in, in solitary climate. Steve, this is the time to bring you in, my friend. Uh, Assalamu alaikum. Uh, Steve, so before we go on to Muhammadu and your relationship with him, you know, you said something to me, if you don't mind sharing it, that you, you, you saw me in, in uh, Camp Echo once. W what went through your mind? What was the circumstance? So, <clears throat> mom, like, Camp Echo, the main camp and main, uh, sorry, excuse me. So Camp Echo, there is that, uh, the wreck, the wreck cage right next to the guard shack there, you know, and Mohamedou's 
the Echo Special was actually right next to that. So if we were to bring Muhammad outside of his uh, outside of his little camp, we'd have to go outside first and make sure there's no detainees in the wreck cage. And a couple times, I think I actually saw you, and I remember one time walking by you while while I was going to going to my shift to work with Mamadou, and I remember I remember making eye contact with you and just then looking down, just feeling ashamed, you know, <clears throat> just at that point, just seeing somebody locked up was not a good feeling at all. So, so you served in uh, Guantanamo from from was it two thousand three to two thousand four, or was it? Uh, um... What was it, the, the time period you served there? Uh, 2004, 2005. It was actually uh, late, late June to end of April, 2005. Uh, okay. And uh, so t tell me then about your, your when you first came across Muhammad, what was your, because I think you, you said to me earlier on that you, you'd come from a, a sort of a Republican background, um, uh, you know, sort of right wing as it were. How did you, when you came to Guantanamo first, were you briefed about the prisoners and particular and particular individuals uh, uh, in a particular way? And what was your kind of general vision of them before you came to Guantanamo? Honestly, I didn't really, I really didn't know anything other than the news told us, you know, that the mm -hmm. worst of the worst were being held there. And they were not, we went through the training and we were always told, you know, to watch your back and, you know, always be careful because all of them, if they had a chance, they they tried to kill you if they could. So, so the first couple of days, first couple of shifts, I worked on uh, Charlie Charlie Block and Oscar Block. So it was a little different going from you know those blocks to going in working with Mohamedou. You know, when I would go walk, walk in and uh, camp Echo Special, you know, Mohamedou walks out with a big smile on his face and shakes my hand and says, "What's up, dude?" You know, and the day before I was, you know. You know, stuff was being thrown on me by you know angry detainees and stuff that were just frustrated. So it was a definitely a one eighty for sure. So to just give people an idea, so somebody who walks on the blocks, like on the blocks, there's about twenty four cells on either side of a forty eight cell uh, block, and you know the soldiers walk up and down there and and see the prisoners, and it's a it's kind of a it can be a more confrontational environment. But in Camp Echo, where we were at this time. Um, people are in solitary confinement, so the only person you can speak to essentially as a prisoner is the, the guard or one of the interrogators come. So how, how did you then start to build a relationship with Muhammad? What was it that, what, what was it that clicked? And, and also, sorry, did this also happen with any other prisoners or was it just Muhammad? So it was just Muhammad. Uh, for the 10 months I was there, I was assigned just to Muhammad. There's about six or seven of us. And we came on like, we were like the first team guard force team that uh, were able to treat him like a friend. You know, the ones before us, they had worn masks at one point. And uh, so, yeah, we came on and, you know, we were allowed to talk to him. You know, he'd sit next to us, you know, we never had to put him in shackles or, you know, we were told to treat him like a friend, you know. So at first it was an act, you know, it was like, okay, this guy is, like we, we we were briefed, told that he was tortured. We like everything in the movie, like that stuff was one hundred percent true. So, uh, but we were told that hey, he was you know now because of that information, he's saving like thousands of lives, you know. And uh, 
remember at the time I like I knew torture was wrong, but I feel guilty thinking this that I thought this way back then. But I was so proud to guard Muhammad because of, you know it was so important, you know. But uh, eventually, I mean, just knowing Muhammad, like I think everybody that meets Muhammad, they realize he's a good guy. And then you start, you know, thinking about what he went gone through, and then hearing all, you know, the evidence that I heard. It, nothing was adding up, you know, and just I started using my heart instead of my brain, you know, just he's a good guy. Uh, you, you said that you, you, you'd go back and, and check out uh, sort of some, some of the profiles of the prisons and stuff. Tell me, tell me which website did you go to and why did you go there? <laughs> uh, that's right. So, yeah, that's why I knew when I saw you who you were, because I actually cageprisoners.com was like the only access to like you know which detainee was who and you know what they were uh suspected of and i remember going through that like in the the uh computer library or computer room and we were up by the apartments there and where we stayed and uh i get on there at night and just kind of research trying to find out information on who is who and like i think you and uh david hicks are the two guys i saw i would see randomly in uh and Cat Beko was walking by. Oh, that's amazing. That's funny. Uh, yeah, that's totally amazing because uh, yeah. the, the, the uh, I guess, web searches, if you do them, it says Mozambique set up caged prisoners in 2003, which is quite kind of a bit difficult considering you're in Cat Echo and solitary confinement at the time. But, you know, we say don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. Um, so let's just move on then to uh, Nancy. And I'll, I'll be coming back to everybody, just trying, trying to give everybody a little bit of a, um, an introduction to this. Uh, Nancy, I um, first met a lawyer in Guantanamo in, in Camp Echo in solitary confinement, and her name was Gita Gutierrez, and she was introduced to me uh, by way of letter um, before this. But I had no way of knowing at all, and in fact, the way that they presented it is that she's actually, she may not even be a lawyer that's come to see you. She could be. Uh, an interrogator you just don't know and that's the way that um, they set it up and so I was really on my guard when I met her can you tell me when you met with Muhammadu was there also this kind of um, I mean how did you convince him that you were actually not an interrogator and you come there to represent him what did you say to him you know I think that uh, Muhammadu can speak to this but I think that he trusted us from the beginning <laughs> Um, he says he had, you know, he had nothing else to lose. Um, but we walked in um, and he stood up. I had written him a letter. I didn't know if he'd received it. Okay. But I walked in and he put his arms up. I've told this story over and over. He put his arms up, but he didn't move. And I, I couldn't quite figure out, did he not want to touch us? Did he just want to hug in the air? What, what did he want to do? And then I realized he was shackled to the floor and just walked right into his arms. And he just held on and said something to the effect of my lawyers. And we started communicating. And I, he was concerned, not that we were interrogators, but that his interrogators were going to come back and grill him about uh, which they did. What did you tell these people? They're not really lawyers or they don't really care about you or something. And um, 
that did happen to him. But I think I, I feel like he trusted us. I, I didn't know if, if what he was telling me was true. I had no way of knowing that. And I've been a lawyer a long time. Clients lie to their lawyers all the time. Um, so I didn't know if what he was telling me was true, but I knew that he was not going to harm me, that um, we were going to get along just fine. And in terms of the, the, the so what, what year did you, did you first see Mohamedou? What did I have to do when I first saw Sorry, what, what year, in, in what year and month did, he, did you first see Mohamedou? Uh, I think it was June of 2005, June or July of 2005. Okay, so it was almost a year after the Supreme Court ruling or something like that. Right, but it was, yeah. um, you know, we were allowed to go there, but still there were, none of the habeas cases were going anywhere. Mm. We filed FOIA, just like it says in the movie, and we got his medical records. Later, lawyers had trouble getting medical records. First, I mean, the, the government classified them. I don't know how you classify medical records, but they did. But we got his, and it was significant because we knew from what he had told us that his ribs had been broken and it was in the medical records. And it was in the medical records uh, that he had a previous back injury. And we could see that the interrogators also had his medical records and were using them against him. So that was the first key. And then we got some of the other government documents an FBI report, a Senate Armed Services Committee report that also discussed his, his torture. And, and one point, one thing I want to ask you is that, you know, there's this thing, uh, you know, you'll know there have been several Supreme Court rulings in the United States about Russell versus Bush, Boumediene versus Bush, um, that ruled that the prisoners had habeas corpus rights. How is it possible then that despite these Supreme Court rulings, the highest court of, uh, of law in the US government, that, that uh, I think, you know, was it last, uh, September, in the case of Abdesalam Hayla, it says that detainees have no dues process rights. What does that mean? I mean, it's, it's a quagmire. It doesn't make any sense to anybody who, who has a modicum of understanding of the law. Well, it is a quagmire. You know, Razul said that they got lawyers, okay? It didn't say that the government was going to respond to the habeas. Bomidian was in 2008 is when uh, finally the government had to file a factual return to our habeas. And of course, it didn't say anything of any value. And then we had to keep filing motions to compel. Um, but due process, right to confrontation, um, you know, any of those, it, no, the Constitution does not appear to apply in Guantanamo, which of course is a mystery to me as a lawyer. How can we have this? We, we, we can't. We can't. So we simply have to get everybody out of there. That's just the only thing we can do now. And one thing, I mean, this is slightly digressing, but one, one of the things that I, I was at some point in the beginning, in the very early days, I was designated for trial by military commission and they had wanted to take me to the military commissions. Now this is a totally different subject, but it, in, in the sense of the, the government has, the United States has already deemed us as enemy combatants. That's what the, the kind of the, the terminology used to describe us. How does ethically, how, how does somebody that, deems you to be this enemy combatant, how, how, did, how do you even have confidence in them defending you? I know there have been lots of defenders uh, from within the military, and I think, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are also cleared to, to, to rep make representations in the military commissions. Um, 
how, how does that happen? How does essentially how does your how does one's enemy defend them? Well, that happens uh, in, in many cases, I think, around the world. Um, the enemy is the government, not necessarily the people in the government. The, def the military lawyers who are defending people, uh, I think, are some of the finest lawyers I've ever encountered. Um, on my other case, al-Nasri, and even in Muhammadu's case, there was a moment where we thought they were going to designate him much later. Um, and I introduced him to a lawyer who went by to visit another prisoner. And as he walked by, I stopped him. He's a Marine. And I said to Muhammadu, if you need to get a message to me, you can trust this guy. And um, that's who I wanted for his military lawyer. And I even talked to the chief defense counsel, not the current one we have, but the previous one. And he was gonna go visit Muhammadu and get him assigned a military lawyer, because if he had a military lawyer assigned with someone who could see him on a, a more regular basis than we did, we went every other month, but they were down there every week. And, um, you know, they're fine lawyers. They're individuals, just like Steve. They're individuals. Um, yeah, no, I think that's, that's absolutely right. I've met several uh, military lawyers here in the UK. They've come to visit me to give evidence and so forth. And I've found them to be, you know, surprisingly uh, absolutely brilliant in the advocate advocacy for their lawyers uh, such as David Hicks is a US military lawyer um mm -hmm. uh, was it Dan Mori I think his name was mm -hmm. yeah Dan Mori uh-huh yeah yeah um Kevin uh, I've been waiting to come to you because um I I've seen several of your films and uh, uh I think I saw the eagle if I if I if I remember when I was coming back from a um, an investigation into the renditions program um in, in Egypt um, and I, I didn't know who you were, but I thought the film was fantastic. I've seen also The King of, Last King of Scotland, uh, and I even saw Black, Black Sea. Um, but I, let, let me ask you this question. You, you've done a whole series of, of fantastic films, uh, including Touching the Void, uh, Marley and Whitney. What made you go to choose to do this film as a, uh, as a uh, um, sort of dramatization of the story of Muhammad rather than a documentary film or a docudrama? Uh, well, it's a real, first of all, it's a real pleasure to be here. And I feel like I'm the least qualified to talk about this subject of all the esteemed guests that you have here. I've obviously never been to Guantanamo, fortunately for me, maybe. But um, uh, it's very it's an honor to be here with you. Um, I, um, I was sent the book by, um, by producers and uh, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, the well-known actor who is in the film, obviously, he had, he had um, been part of the publicity for Guantanamo Diary. I think he did a reading for The Guardian uh, and that had set his interest off in the subject. He'd read the rest of the book. He got together with a producer, an American producer called Lloyd Levin and uh, they optioned the book and that was, I think 2015 still actually, I think it probably what Nancy could probably tell me, but before Mohamedou was released still, and shortly after the book was published. And I was sent it the following year, I know 2017, so Mohamedou was just out. And um, uh, I, I thought, how do you make a film um, about the war on terror that anyone's going to watch? And I read Mohamedou's book and I thought it was fascinating, I thought it was beautifully written because he is a real writer. I think that's one of the things that 
we should say is that you know he 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 he's got a, a poet's soul, Mahamadou, and he writes beautifully. Um, but I, I I couldn't see how you made it into a film, and it was only when I talked to Mahamadou after that um, on on Skype that I realized that here was a way to make the the, the 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 film I wanted to make was about this amazing man as an individual, a personality, and to make it not an overtly political movie, because I think from my point of view. There obviously have been films about Guantanamo, there have been documentaries, there have been uh, books and myriad articles. But the only point for me in making another one was to touch the audiences who haven't been touched yet, a mainstream audience. Because obviously Guantanamo is, um, for so many people, it's the kind of thing they want to keep at arm's length. It's too unpleasant to think about, particularly for Americans, obviously, but for other people as well. And I thought, I want to make a film which is unashamedly trying to be a popular film, which is trying to um, bring a wide general audience who don't, who haven't read those articles, read those books, seen the documentaries, whatever. And um, I felt that Mohamedou's uh, character, his story of how his life story and how he ended up in Guantanamo, um, was made him an, made him a perfect. Uh, 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 conduit to tell that kind of popular story. And also because of his character, as we've heard tonight, he's a very warm and very funny person. And that helps obviously in terms of trying to make a, a film that is gonna reach a wide audience. So that, that's, that's how I came to do it. And I, you know, previously I had read quite a lot about Guantanamo. I'd, I'd um, been as appalled as, as, as everyone else was about, or not everyone, but a lot of people were about, about what was going on. So, um, but, but to be honest, that political motivation came secondary. I mean, first of all, I'd like to say that you, I, I believe you have achieved that, that to make this story to the story of the you know, Mohammedu story in particular and the story of Guantanamo in general, um, you brought it to the mainstream. You brought it in a place where other films perhaps weren't able to do so in the way uh, that you have, i.e. to tell the story of Mohammedu from Mohammedu's point of view. I've seen other films, and, and uh, you know, the Road to Guantanamo perhaps was was one of them that told the story from from the, the prisoners themselves, but it didn't get that reach, and it Guantanamo had still was still um, something that was a bit of a mystery. Um, by the time Camp X-ray was done, that was again, it's it's a, it's a good attempt at portrayal of life in Guantanamo, but it really doesn't take anybody's any individual story, uh, and you know, the report is, is another one which is. You know, it, it's it's brilliant in that it talks about the whole torture program, um, but it the victims, uh, the subjects of that torture are are are, are an afterthought, if, if that. Um, and in this regard here, uh, my my view was as a former prisoner myself, this was the first time that this is, has happened, and you can clearly tell it's a story that's coming from um, the person himself. I've several former Guantanamo prisoners have seen the film, by the way, and. Um, Different, there have been different reactions. Some couldn't watch it, and some have refused to watch it because of the same reason Mohamedou says that he couldn't watch the torture scenes. Um, others have critiqued it, um, and others have uh, have said that this is a way forward. This will open a new door. And I'm amongst those who believe that it would do that. I just want to ask you this then. Um, one of the things that happens is, is that um, you, you've got Tahar Rahim, playing uh, Mohamedou. And I, I've seen Tahar in, in several different films. Um, of course, seen recently in The Serpent, 
playing playing a serial killer. Um, <laughs> and in the Looming Tower, he plays Ali Soufan. And Ali Soufan was, you know, one of the interrogators at Guantanamo and also in the war on terrorism and so forth. And we, we have actually campaigned on one case um, as Cage where, where there are accusations against Ali Soufan for being involved in, in, in an abuse of one particular individual. So, I mean, I know this is a question for Tahar, not for you really, but Tahar has, has taken on the role of Muhammadu and the way he's portrayed it has been so sort of realistic that it's won him this nomination uh, for the BAFTA. How did you pick him? Well, you may not realize it, but you said you saw my film, The Eagle, and he is in The Eagle. Oh. He, plays, <laughs> he plays a, this is a film made 10 years ago, which is, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's a, it's a, a kind of boy's own adventure Roman film <laughs> set in the second century. And it's the star is someone called Channing Tatum, who was very popular with the girls for a while. And um, uh, he, I'd seen him in a brilliant French film called A Prophet, which if you haven't seen it, you should check out. Mm -hmm. He um, was so good, I thought I wanted him in this film, but he didn't at that stage speak any English. And uh, this when we were making the, making the Eagle in 2010, I think it was. And I gave him a role of, of a Gaelic prince and he had to learn Gaelic, which for those of you who are not joining from the UK, won't know what Gaelic is. It's the sort of uh, ancient language of Scotland and Ireland. And so he learned phonetically to say his lines in Gaelic. Um, but we became very good friends. And he, um, uh, we've seen each other off and on over the years. So when I spoke to Muhammadu on that first occasion, Tahar popped into my mind as being the absolute perfect person because you know, I knew him, I knew he had, you know, he's a little bit like Muhammadu in terms of his warmth and his humor, um, but he's a brilliant actor and his English, because he did that, The Looming Tower, and because he then did The Serpent, he'd done a couple of English shows. And uh, because, you know, should, haven't said that he's a, he's, a, he's a Frenchman of Algerian extraction. Um, uh, and, and his English had got better and better and better and better until, you know, now it's, it's great. He can act, you know, he can act perfectly comfortably in, in English and even improvise in English. Um, so yeah, that was, the, I, I, he was the first person we cast. He was the first person and, and he is absolutely brilliant. And I think it was very, you know, very meaningful for, meaningful for him doing this, doing this role. And I, I, you know, he'd been offered many roles playing in American movies as, as playing terrorists and something and he turned them all down. He didn't want to do that. And he felt, ah, this is the film about the war on terror I want to tell. This is the story I want to tell. And, um, uh, we spent about two years trying to get the script together, trying to get the money together, more importantly. And during that time, he was working on it. He talked to Mohamedou. He was, we were working on the dialogue, et cetera, et cetera. So by the time we came to it, he was very, very prepared. And I think he, you can tell from the performance that it's more than just a job for him. It's something which yeah. really had deep significance for him. Well, thank you. I mean, I think you picked the, absolutely the, the, the right person for the job and it's, uh, it, it's, it's deeply memorable. Um, Mohamedou, I wanted to ask you, my friend, um, you know, one of the things that I've been accused of in the past, and I'm sure that you must be accused of currently, is that you are too forgiving. Um, and forgiving people is something that you shouldn't be doing whilst the abuses in Guantanamo are still going on. Uh, Tell me what role has forgiveness played in your personal development as a person and 
um, what were you always like this? Did you always think that whatever these guys are going to do to me, uh, I'm going to put it aside. I have, I, I need to 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 get out of this in one piece without being bitter. What role did forgiveness play for you, Muhammad? If you're still there. The plane came to Jordan and picked me up, and they destroyed my clothes. You know, with the scissors. You know the scissors. Yes. You know, when they put the diaper on you. I knew, you know, it came to my mind that was the end of it. I wasn't coming back home. And this was to me death. I was aware of. And what mattered to me at that moment, not money, not a very fancy car, not like getting back at people. What mattered to me came to my mind all the bad gestures and bad things that I said to my family. Thought about and I wish I was always nice to. I never thought, oh, I should have got that $100,000 from the bank. You know, no, that didn't matter to me. So I asked people because they never entered the cell. It was closed behind them because when the door slammed shut and you can only breathe if the guard decides you can breathe. You can only eat if the guard decides you can eat. You can only go out if the guard decides you can go out. Priorities change. And I'm preaching to the choir. And if you forgive, you'd be closer to God. And this is, I mean, this is honestly the way. I have no advantage in seeing Richard Zuli suffering, the, the officer who oversaw my, my torture. No, there is to I want him to live a good life because I mean, there is good uh, to go around for everyone. And I wanted to allow me to do some bragging, a little bit of self promotion. The Adhan you heard in the movie, that was my Adhan. You know, <laughs> but better, better that. It was like, you know, like in a movie, I say this to lay people, there are many takes. Like hundreds of takes. But when I did the event, I don't remember exactly, but I think Kevin said, that's good, that's good. Like maybe one or two takes. But he, he completely destroyed my hope because I want to do so many takes, you know, because <laughs> This was myself promote, and I want Hollywood to notice my event <laughs> so they could hire me. But yeah, it's good. So and then you heard it. So you could, you potentially could be Hollywood's own very own Muaddin, huh? Is that what you think? <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, so. I've got to ask you a really difficult question, brother, because just it's just something that that really, really hit me in the film. And I've read the book, and uh, and 
it's been a while since I read it because just like a lot of the former prisoners, it's, there's only so much re-traumatization you can get uh, in reading this stuff and going through it again. But, you know, in, in the film, there's this scene where they take you away in Mauritania and um, you turn around or you look in the mirror and that's, you see your mother, Allah yarham. Did you know, do you feel that that's it? Did you actually feel at that point that you're never going to see her again? Or when did that come to you? May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant her mercy and enter into Jannah to those Allah. You know, that scene, just for the people who uh, watch the movie or who want to watch the movie, that scene is so accurate because the image of my mother praying with her tasbih, prayer beat, holding it, frantically praying. And she was getting smaller and smaller and smaller until I turned dry. That scene was shot in the very place it happened almost 20 years uh, ago. And uh, of course, I, I, if, if I knew I would never see her again, I, I wouldn't me that my mom passed away because my family knew this was so hard that my lawyer had to tell me that and I almost like collapsed and I start singing the Quran all day all day long all day long that's my ritual like two people die like two people that are so close to me died my mother and my brother and my ritual I just start khatma and I never stop. But khatma takes like about 20 hours, you know, something like that. But I don't stop until I collapse, you know, because I need my body not to feel anything. I need my body to tire my body so much that I can do nothing. I cannot think anymore, you know. And, uh, you know, and at that point, I always woke up in the morning, did my prayer, and then read, 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 read until I go to sleep. Never talk to anyone. At that day, I was broken. And the guard came to me, and then they said, Muhammad, we're sorry. And so they were very nice to me. And I, I said, okay, I talk to you. And then they came to me. And I said, I read Quran and then, but what I do, the guard was playing cards because I really needed to uh, get the, like the pain and the suffering. Yeah, subhanAllah. That's, uh, I mean, I found that very, and this is one of the things that I think people really don't, you know, the part of the humanization of the stories of the prisoners is that many of them have lost relatives. Some of them have lost, um, you know, uh, children. I know, you know, some, some who lost their children while they were in prison. Uh, others have lost fathers and mothers like yourself. And it's a, it's a very, very painful part of the story because something we need to remember that uh, even, even the worst convicted criminals uh, in the United States and elsewhere who have actually killed people and done the most heinous crimes get basic access um, to visitation rights, to communication rights, to letters that are unredacted, to, um, you know, to legal rights, all of that sort of stuff. And you have to ask yourself this question, what crime is it that I committed that is so bad that they will take this away from me? So I just pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
reunite you, you with your mother in the best place in the in the next life and uh, uh, you know you know that that she would be very 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 proud of the person that you have become um Steve I want to ask you my friend you, you've seen um the other prisoners uh, sorry the other the, the soldiers you've seen Chris uh, Arantel you've heard about him you've heard of perhaps Al uh, Albert Malisian came here to the UK met with me um Brandon uh, and uh, Terry Holbrooks what role have these guys played in you as a former soldier that served in Guantanamo seeing them come out and meet with the prisoners and talk about them and come to visit us uh, what role did that play in you wanting to do something similar with somebody that you got to know well uh, <clears throat> I think uh, with uh, Brandon Neely I reached out to him and spoke to him about coming out because prior to going public I uh, with with a lawyer uh, wrote a letter to the government, you know, requesting mom to be released and her in support of him being released. And uh, that, that came out first. And then before I ever did anything, you know, with the media, I would, uh, yeah, uh, spoke to Brandon Neely. And then I watched a lot of the, the videos of yours and uh, read a lot of articles. And it made me feel like I wasn't alone, you know, and I saw that, you know, like they didn't get in trouble from the government, you know, the US government. So, you know, so felt safe doing it you know knowing that there's others others out there I feel, felt the same way uh you know when Chris Arendt uh first contacted me it was back in I think 2008 or, or, or something like that he came here in 2009 we toured around the UK uh, on a tour a cage prisoners tour called two sides one story so it was like this former Guantanamo prisoner former Guantanamo uh, guard and you know I can't describe to you that you know we had events where there was 1500 2000 people turning up to listen to this story um, in universities and other places around the country. And I was worried for Chris, because I thought, okay, you're getting a lot of attention over here when you go back to the U US, um, people are gonna start calling you all sorts of names and things like that. And then uh, Terry came over as well, and he, he also did, uh, came here. We went to Dubai together, and we actually did an event uh, with Professor Philip Zimbardo, who, who did that famous Stanford experiment back in the 70s. And it was about how people can, people in power, unrestricted power can, uh, can abuse others. Uh, that, meeting these guys, you know, I gotta tell you, um, and, and uh, perhaps Kevin might appreciate this, but I first saw the film Snatch uh, in Camp Echo. Uh, the film Snatch, if anybody's never seen it, it's a brilliant film uh, with Brad Pitt. And it's, it's, about, uh, it's about all sorts of really funny stuff. But I was quite depressed at the time. And the soldier bought in a, a, a DVD player and he put it on and he, he, uh, uh, he said, you know, Mozam, you can watch this film. He used to call me by my name. He wouldn't call me by my number. And uh, that's the first time I saw it. And when I came across soldiers like this who would do these little things that would, could have got him in trouble, but they were acts of humanity. Um, I knew that despite the abuses I had witnessed, and I had witnessed some very, very serious abuses, including murder, that everybody's not the same. And my vision of the, 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 the soldiers, in fact, my interaction with the soldiers was the reason, with these particular soldiers, was the reason I didn't come out of Guantanamo hating America. It was because of you guys. And I want you to know that because this is something, it's a sentiment that I know a lot of former Guantanamo prisoners have. Um, 
and seeing people like you stretch out and reach out and make that effort towards Muhammadu and, and, and others is, is really heartwarming. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a message that we want others to hear. What do you, I've had many, many messages from many former Guantanamo soldiers, some in public, but many not. What do you think has been or will be the point at which other soldiers will start to change uh, their view about what Guantanamo was and is? Just, you know, the more publicity, I mean, like Muhammad's movie, you know, the Mauritanian and the more people that start reaching out and realizing that, you know, there's no repercussions for speaking out, you know, because it's, it's kind of, you know, scary at first. I think, yeah, every, everybody get together and speak out together and make a change, you know? Uh, if you haven't guys already seen it, um, hopefully you'll see it within the, it's, it's in the, in the chat, um, the film made by the Guardian called My Brother's Keeper. It's really, really beautiful um, uh, film, short film made by the Guardian about um, uh, um, Steve's reunion with Mohamedou in Mauritania. It's, it's really, it's really one, wonderful. Uh, I, I would suggest everybody to watch this. Um, Nancy, you uh, still have a, 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 you're still making representations for people in Guantanamo. Um, at which point, and one of those, of course, have, one of those prisoners, Abdurrahim and, and Nashiri, has been the subject of, uh, I think, a couple of cases where he's won uh, compensation by a European court for the, their role, for the role of two countries, two European countries, in his torture. I mean, when did you become aware of the extent to which people had been tortured in Guantanamo and uh, the renditions program? Well, I became aware of it with Mohammedu, of course. And the very first day I met Abrahim, very first day, 2008, I stood, it was three male lawyers. This was before the commissions, before anyone in the commissions. We, they didn't even have the commissions yet. Um, it was me and some habeas lawyers from Las Vegas. And I stood there with them and I waited and, you know, he shook hands with them and I waited being polite, not knowing. And he reached out his hands to shake hands with me. And I said, Kefalik, and, you know, my limited um, Arabic. And then I sat next to him. Oh, and Terry was there. Terry Duncan was there, or two women. And um, I sat next to him. We, we sat in kind of a circle in, in that cell in Echo. And he started to, I, I'm not going to say what he said, because I can't. But he started to talk about what had happened to him. And when he did, he grabbed my hand. And I felt literally like I was just like lightning had struck. You know, that, that it, it was just coming right through me. And he kept talking about it. And we were getting near ready to leave. And Terry turned to me and she said, we have to change the subject. We can't just suddenly leave when he's in the middle of talking about this. And, you know, for his sake. But that's when I learned. And I learned most of what happened to him right then. Um, and I represented him um, in those two cases in the European court um, and was able to tell his mother, see his mother afterwards in Saudi. She's passed now, but after she got the money, the first money, 
we're going to a third country. Uh, we're on our way to the third country. We're already filing there. Um, we have a case in the International Criminal Court and a case in the UK with a tribunal. And the other thing I know from El Nashri, I can't, I, I, I still represent him in the commissions, but I don't really have anything to do with those cases. They're not getting anywhere. And the only thing I can do for him, which I believe he wants, is accountability. I believe he wants the world to know what happened to him. And he wants his family, obviously, to have money that he couldn't make because he was in prison. And that's what I'm doing for him. And if that's all I can do for him, at least we're doing something for him. Um, and you know, it, it's tragic, but uh, he's facing the death penalty in Guantanamo. Another reason why Guantanamo has to close and everybody has to get due process and get their cases resolved. Uh, thank you, Nancy, for that. I mean, it's really important that we understand this, guys, as we're, as we're watching this. We're, watching, we're talking about a film that's, that's you know, one, uh, nominated five BAFTAs, uh, Golden Globes, uh, uh, and probably some Academy Awards there. While we're talking about this kind of great artistic experience, there are people still in Guantanamo. There are still people who suffered torture, went through the enhanced interrogation program, went through border boarding, and one person 180 times, one person 83 times, one person 50 odd times, and they've never been treated for that, 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 that torture, in addition to all of the other techniques uh, that, they had, uh, that they underwent. And this is one of the most important things for me. This is why I do what I do. This is why CAGE does what it does. Um, we want you to understand from the voices of the people that are directly there that have been communicated what is going on in this war on terrorism. Um, and it's never ending tentacles reaching every single part of the world. Uh, uh, so please do to do try to find out more. Uh, Abdurrahim and Nashiri is, um, is Nancy's other client. Uh, as I said before, there are, there's a film called The Report, just if for nothing else, just to find out what happened in the backstory, what happened in the United States of America for those who tried to bring out the torture. Uh, in the in the reports of, of, of uh, the CIA and what they've done to uh, people like Abu Zubaydah and Nashiri. Uh, <coughs> I wanted to ask you, Kevin, then now that we're here in, in, in this time, this moment, I spoke to a, somebody who, who, who many years ago was talking to me about uh, screenwriting for something based upon my book. And he said to me when he saw the film first, it was a couple of months ago, um, or just when it had been uh, um, released, that this film will be winning some uh, some awards. I can guarantee that. And he was right. Can you envisage, uh, Kevin, that such a film would open doors to other types of films, exploring areas and individuals or conflicts or situations that Hollywood wouldn't have thought of doing before? In other words, trying to humanize other stories in the light of what we've discussed with Mohamedou, with Steve, with Nancy, uh, that uh, th there can be a way to settle issues like this. There can be ways to talk, there can be ways to negotiate. Five, five former uh, prisoners from Guantanamo were sent uh, to Qatar in 2014, and they are all senior members of the Taliban, and they sat with and continue to sit with senior US military leaders and politicians, including 
uh, US Secretary uh, of State Mike Pompeo. If that is possible, if something like that is possible, then what do ordinary people do who have who've developed this hatred for, for both sides that they can sit together with former Guantanamo prisoners and talk peace and withdrawal with these guys? Do you think a film like this could ever be possible, uh, Kevin? Yes, I mean, I think I made this film in the belief that movies are the ultimate empathy machines. They're, they're the way that in our culture, we can step into other people's shoes. Maybe only briefly for two hours, maybe in a very simplified form. Every movie that's two hours, it obviously was a simplified version of a story. But I think it's what, um, you know, movies do best. And I think that I think that if you look back over Hollywood history, you have films like The Killing Fields about the Cambodian genocide. You have films like Hotel Rwanda. You have films like Philadelphia about AIDS, um, which nobody wanted to talk about. And actually when these issues, which people are, are taboos or people find them too frightening to confront or talk about, when they're dealt with within the context of a mainstream film or television series, I think you can't underestimate how much that opens people's eyes. And it's maybe the, only the beginning of a journey for people. They can then go and they can read Mohamedou's book, they can read your book, you can read you know, other books and, and get real deep knowledge of it. But I think movies can make us feel that we're connected to somebody, to understand them simply as human beings. So yes, I think that there are many other movies like this that that can uh, uh, that can be made and around this subject, and I, I, I hope they I hope they will. Um, uh, yeah, that's all I can say. Uh, from what you, your reading of of you know the film industry, yeah. um, and obviously the success of, of the Mauritanian, do, do you think that um, such a film would would be uh, available? I guess across the board. Do you think that? it would receive wide, I mean, any, any film, not, not just this, but any film, let's just, let's just say for argument's sake, you made a film about this, as I said, um, the Taliban do a peace deal with, with these guys, that people will look back and say, okay, we, we are no longer in this, we passed that stage of being affected by the trauma of 9-11, and now we wanna, we wanna heal wounds. Do, yeah. do you think that that is something that we could do, even as we, though, even though as we say that, Kind of aspects of the war on terror are still very alive and kicking. I, I, I absolutely do. And I, uh, my sense, and obviously it's only a very personal sense, is that America in particular, and America is, I guess, largely what we're talking about here, is, is ready for that. And I've been so encouraged by some of the responses to this film uh, from people who have been in touch with me who've said, you know, I used to believe that everyone who was in Guantanamo there was really should have been there and they were awful people. And, and now I've changed my mind. Now I see the reality of it. And I think if, if a film could be made about peace process with the Taliban, I'm sure that, I'm sure that it will. I think that there, uh, maybe I'm an optimist, but I think that we're moving into a time where we're going to have to all realize that, you know, we live on a small planet and we need to get on and we need to try and understand each other instead of deliberately uh, uh, building up a sense of difference and, and uh, dehumanizing others who we don't feel are, are like us. And I think often, as Steve, Steve's example points, you know, points to, and all the other guards you're talking about, the individuals see other prisoners or other people on the other side as individuals. It's the, it's the politicians, it's the governments who have their reasons to want to um, 
uh, uh, vilify the other. And um, I think maybe as we become more, you know, more connected, that won't, won't happen so much that actually ordinary people want to understand. Well, I think being connected is one of the most important things. If there's anything that's come out of the kind of lockdown, it's, it's that you know, more of these kind of things have, have been have forced upon people to talk to, you know, sort of across continents. And here, that's what we're doing this evening. Uh, so I really thank all of you um, for taking part. Before I go into the Q&A, if, if uh, you do need to leave, just, just, just go ahead and tell me that you need to leave. Um, we've, there are about, we had about 500 people registered for this. I'm not sure how many people are here now. There's lots and lots of Q&A. Um, before I go into q and I just want to say just um, there is a letter that myself and Hamadou and uh, five other former prisoners who are also authors um, uh, wrote in the New York uh, uh, Review of Books that was published uh, in, in the end of January, calling on Biden to close Guantanamo and offering him an eight-point plan in which and, uh, he could do this quite easily. Uh, so you, you should be able to see that in the... Uh, in the chat, um, as well as references to, to other films and things that we've mentioned uh, this evening. So please, this is one of the things we, we are asking everyone to make sure that this, that this letter uh, gets uh, distributed as wide as possible, read as wide as possible, seen as wide as possible by people in power and beyond, um, because it, it, is, it is a heartfelt letter um, talking about various aspects, uh, but also talking about reconciliation or conciliatory uh, language, um, simply asking America to do the right thing, asking Biden to do the right thing, to do away with Guantanamo and close this, this dark chapter on the United States of America once and for all. And I think the momentum that has been gained with the, Mor the Mauritanian film is the right time for this to happen. Uh, so please do that. I'm just going to go to some Q&A and uh, uh, forgive me if I can't get to you. Uh, we'll probably stay for a maximum of half an hour more. And uh, if, if you need to leave, just uh, any of the panelists, please just say say so. Uh, I'm going to ask questions and see how we, we fare with them. But the first question is Mohammed Sami. He says, uh, um, why isn't Guantanamo closed? The Americans are not protesting against it. Um, I want to know from Nancy, what did President Biden, what's President Biden going to do about it? Um, what do you think, Nancy? Well, um, I think if there's the per political will to do it, it can happen. Uh, there are people protesting against it, and there are people being very active, the ACLU, CCR, Amnesty, by the way, Kevin um, and Jody and Shailene all did videos for Amnesty International about closing Guantanamo. But there are six people there who've been cleared for release. One of them, at least, since 2009. Those people, it's easy. Just find homes for them, find places where they'll be safe, where they want to be, and they leave. The other 25 or so who are called forever prisoners, whatever that means, we don't have forever prisoners in the US of people who've never been charged. It's bad enough that we have life without parole for people after they're convicted, but these people have never been charged. So obviously there's not any ability for the prosecution to charge them, they go. As for the ones remaining, there are processes, due process, um, ways to resolve their cases in ways that comport with all of the US Constitution. It can be done. It takes political will on the part of the government to do it. And it takes people 
like us and like the people who are sitting on this chat, who are from the US and others places to stay on the government to get it done and to make sure that it's not happening anywhere else. You know, there are other places, but make sure at least the US isn't doing it anywhere else. Yeah, thank you for that, Nancy. And again, I would reiterate that, look, the United States began negotiations with the Taliban, not just the Taliban, but pro prisoners who were held in Guantanamo uh, in 2014. If they can do that, um, then what's the point of holding these prisoners in a war that's already over? Um, you know, the, the, that war, well, that it makes no aspect. sense. Yeah. You know, one day those five prisoners, one day the government said national security demands that they never be released. The next day they had a reason to release them in exchange for someone, all of a sudden it was okay. It just shows how ridiculous this is. Absolutely, and I think it's really important people, people know this and, and, and take this on as, a, as an argument and present it, um, uh, that you've got these low level guys here who uh, are still deemed to be a threat though we've never charged them. They are too innocent to prosecute and too dangerous to release. What kind of topsy-turvy world are we living in? Um, there's a really nice message from Sidi Mohammed. Uh, he's from Mauritania. He says, as a young Mauritanian myself, I'm very proud to have a role model like Mohamedou. I watched the film the first day it was released and I was tremendously proud of how people reacted to it. Many people came to me afterwards and asked me about Mohamedou's story. So what I want to ask is how does he feel about his book being adapted into a film? Mohamedou. Uh, thank you very much, shukran, and I feel uh, very happy, I'm very happy, and this is a very big gift of Allah, this is not, not just like any movie, you need to understand that there are thousands of movies produced every year, and the Mauritanian, everybody is talking about the Mauritanian, this is like, you know, uh, directed by Kevin, Kevin is a very important person in the movie industry and like very big actors like Tahin, Jody Foster, Sherin Woodley, Benedict Cumberbatch and others. And uh, I, I just want to put in youth because I used to be one. I just want to say that, you know, I don't like to talk around stuff. So this whole war in Torah is targeting young Muslims, young Muslims. And this needs to stop. This needs to stop because, because uh, we need to enjoy the same freedom that Mu'adham enjoys, that Steve enjoys, that Kevin and Nessie enjoy. This, is, this needs to stop. And I'm not cutting any slacks for our corrupt regimes. Muslim regimes are the worst. I'm saying this, I'm not afraid to say it. You know, most people were tortured by Muslims, you know, in the name of the United States of America. And this needs to stop. I mean, I mean, this is very confusing to a Muslim young person to see, oh, oh what are you doing? You know, and these people in this part of the world differently. And we all know these terror, terrorism charges are just like, you know, just it's a hmm? uh, thank you for that Mohammed that's a it's a really important point um, we have to remember that the majority of people that were handed over to the United States of America were handed over like myself by Pakistan without any legal process or a bounty 
Others were handed over by countries such as Jordan uh, or Morocco that was involved in the rendition program and the torture program. Uh, people handed over by Azerbaijan, by Indonesia, by, um, I mean, you know, if you do look across the common denominator in those cases it seems to be, though it's not only Muslim countries, as we know that the Eastern European countries took part in the rendition program and the torture, this was a world affair. Um, but it, you're right that, the, in, that uh, in the Muslim world, unfortunately, we have seen a great deal of, uh, um, of acts of torture that even the Americans wouldn't do. There's a question here by Franka, uh, excuse my pronunciation, Dumovic, uh, who says, my question is for Mr. Wood, for Steve. As an exchange, exchange student in a small American town, I came across a lot of people with very strong, extremely patriotic beliefs, uh, which was a culture of shock to me as a European. I'm interested to know uh, in how you managed to get out of that mindset when meeting with Mr. Salahi, because to me, it seems like an impossible thing to do. Uh, Steve. You know, <clears throat> it just, you know, I spent many, many hours with Muhammad, like, you know, 12 hours a day, just talking to somebody from, you know, at the time, I, I, I never, I'd never even heard of Mauritania, you know, so like, getting to know somebody that's like from a drastically different world than yours and hearing their points of view and their their view of uh historical things that happened in, in history you know and conflicts in the world and, the, and you just realize everybody is you know like everybody's heard about like you know the american exceptionalism you know and that's just wrong <clears throat> you know everybody is we're all the same you know and it's it just clicked one day, you know? And then I think Mahamadou for, you know, he's the one that kind of led me to that path. Just treating me like a human being, you know, when I was in the, the person in, you know, in control of him. So it was just, yeah, his friendship is what it did it. Thank you for that, Steve. That's, uh, there's another question here for you. He said, could, could Steve tell us a bit about the private attitudes or opinions of other guards at Guantanamo at the time? Uh, around the uh, when they weren't around the prisoners. So <clears throat> I was uh, there's like six or seven of us watching Mahamadou, and we weren't allowed to talk about our job with anybody else on base. Like because Mahamadou, it was like a, he was a ghost prisoner at the time. You know, it was it was a ghost site. Echo Special was, and so honestly, like I, they all liked Mahamadou. The guys that worked with them, you know, we all, everybody, everybody, you know, thought highly of him, you know, and, and, and when we left, I remember talking to the guys after, you know, on our last shift, like, man, I hope, hope he gets out soon, you know, hopefully we'll see it on the news someday, you know, and, and, and uh, I'm still in contact with like three or four of them and, you know, that because of their, you know, what they do in their, in their lives, they're not able to speak publicly, but they're all, they all told me like, yeah, tell Mahamadou, yeah, congratulations, I'm glad you're out, you know, so it's, yeah. Thanks for that, Steve, thanks very much. Um, there's a question here from uh, Dr. David Nichol, who I've got to tell you is, is a, you know, personal good friend of ours and has been campaigning for against Guantanamo in the UK um, for many, many years. He actually did the marathon uh, here in London, uh, dressed in an orange jumpsuit and, uh, and, and chains and shouting uh, closed Guantanamo. He's been an advocate against this for many, many years. So really pleased to have him here. He has a question for Kevin. 
he says, um, uh, so do you have uh, any op film options of the redacted uh, copy of the book? Sorry, I was gonna ask again. I said, so did you have the film options of the redacted copy of the book? Uh, which is interesting as you wouldn't have had known the details of what was in the censored parts. Uh, do, do, Kevin. Um, well, I, I think when, when it wasn't me who actually optioned the book, as I said, it was a couple of producers, um, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and, 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 and Levin, and um, uh, they optioned the redacted version because that was all that was available at the time. Um, you're probably stirring up a, a hornet's nest for some lawyers somewhere, you know, did, is the, does the other book, the non-redacted version, has it got a different copyright? <laughs> Hopefully not. Um, but no, I, I, obviously, whenever people ask me, uh, you know, which book should I read? Should I read the original or should I read the unredacted? And I tell them you should get both because you should have the redacted one just as a, as a piece of concrete art you know it's such an extraordinary object to look at to see what things the government wanted to take out what words what names what chapter but of course as a as a book to read the non-redacted version is is a proper book and you can you can you can get lost in it and involved in it um so yes the the, the um you know i encourage everyone to read the the non-redacted version plus it has the introduction um a long introduction that Mohamedou wrote to it about how the last few weeks that he was in Guantanamo and uh, and and, and uh, his return home, which I think of all the writing I've read of Mohamedou's is his most beautiful piece of writing. It's a, and, and obviously he could do that at home at leisure in Mo, in Mauritania and edit it in a way that he hadn't been able to edit the earlier book. And it's a it's very beautiful. Thank you, thank you very much, and. Uh... I encourage everybody to read his book, uh, Guantanamo Diary, which I think that there's a there's a new version of it called the Mauritanian. Is that right? Yeah, I can't believe they retitled. I didn't actually know they were retitling it, but I don't yeah. know what Mohamedou thinks of that. But <laughs> I'm sure well, they consult the sure consulted with him. <laughs> well, it's the it's, same book. It's the same book. Yeah, yeah, it's just a different title. Uh, <laughs> Mohamedou, considering we're talking about what we talked about you all evening, but there's a question here, a very simple question. Have you ever been to the USA? I have an answer for this for myself, but I want you to give the answer. Have you ever been to the USA? Never have I applied for a visa to the USA. Never did I stand in front of an embassy of the USA, except when they invited me several weeks ago to hold speech at the embassy. And I gladly accepted and went there. And okay. uh, by the way, speaking of uh, having been to a place, I feel very insulted uh, from the home office when they said, when they refused my visa for the UK, saying that I'm not good for peace in the UK. When I know in the bottom of my heart that I harbor nothing but love and appreciation for every UK citizen, because UK citizens stood by me. You know, and they supported me, and they supported uh, the Chinese, and they supported Guantanamo with the closure of Guantanamo Bay. And this is so comfortable. We hold you, and I know there are many people from the UK here. You know that I have nothing but the respect for you, and I hope that your home office reconsiders. You know, they are very unfair decision to ban me from entering your beautiful country. 
Thank you for that, Mohammed. I remember I met your brother actually at, a, at an event in the British Parliament that was done uh, based on the readings uh, from your book as well by several very well-known uh, um, British actors. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> so I remember, I think, Na I think I saw Nancy there as well at that time. Uh, the, the British, of course, have, have been campaigning against Guantanamo and the fact that your, your case became prominent here is also a testament to that. Uh, and it is very sad um, um, reflection of, of uh, you know, this government today and the Home Secretary that they're not allowing you to come to this country. Um, but if, if you had understood how British politics it, as it is today, it's, it's unsurprising, but uh, I hope that the, the, the decision is revised because people need to be able to see a way forward. And that's what something that you and Steve have done. Uh, the next question is for, um, for Nancy, a couple of questions for Nancy actually. Somebody says that they have a friend who's a Yale lawyer who worked in Gitmo. And he said he was shocked at the abuse of the legal system through complete incompetence. Lawyers would not read the notes and repeat, uh, repeat all, all the questions asked. Uh, another lawyer would claim statements had not been made. The torture was clearly pointless and did not yield anything of value. Uh, when did uh, when did Nancy, uh, when, sorry, when he objected, he was sacked. What was your experience uh, with this type of stuff? Well, I think this person is talking about the commissions. Um, it sounds like. Um, in Mohamedou's case, um, the government, by the time we got to a hearing, uh, the government had caved in on everything. They said uh, Mohamedou was not involved in the Millennium Plot, which was the first thing, not involved in 9-11, which was the second thing, and that they weren't going to use any of his evidence, his statements that were tortured, and they weren't going to use any of Ramsey bin Al-Shib's uh, statements. So all they had left when we got to a hearing was he joined Al-Qaeda in 1990-92 and he never, quote, withdrew, whatever that means, because in a, in a habeas case, it doesn't mean anything. Um, and I believe I said to the judge something to the effect of, I think we joined Al-Qaeda. And he said, yes, Miss Hollander, we've all read Charlie Wilson's War. But he agreed. And that's all they had. That is all they had. So I never encountered um, that, except that I've certainly heard people continue to say that there was actionable intelligence learned from the torture, when we absolutely know that was not true, when the CIA admitted itself that it wasn't true, they learned nothing. And I am not at all convinced that they intended to learn anything. I believe, and there are doctors who believe this, that it was all basically an experiment to see what they could do um, with people who'd been tortured because they knew they weren't gonna get any evidence out of it. Um, and people were used as guinea pigs. And I, I believe that that may well seriously come out someday. Okay, thanks. Um, uh, a couple of questions here, which, which are kind of connected one to the other. I mean, it says for Nancy, but I, I guess, um, the first is, from a legal standpoint, what can be done, this is from Zubair Ali Khan, he said, what can be done to prevent such cases of wrongful uh, detention in the future? Uh, and the next case from Mahdi Sheikh, he says essentially, that is it, is it, does it make sense, is it practical calling for the closure of Guantanamo? Surely it's, it, 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 it's, it's, you know, it's doable, but is it practical? Obama couldn't do it and he wanted to. So what, what makes us think that anybody else could do something that in fact has 
some kind of popular support behind it? I don't think Obama tried very hard. I think Obama said he wanted to do it, but then it, it disappeared um, from the political will and we never heard any more about it. So it's really got to be done. Obama did too, he said he wanted to close it, but it was his Justice Department that appealed Mohamedou's case when we won. It was his Justice Department that appealed the other cases when they won. So, you know, uh, kind of talking out of both sides of his mouth. That Justice Department could have said they won, those people are gone. It was only toward the end that he set up these periodic review boards that got some people out, not courts. It can be done, but it's going to take work. It's gonna take pressure. And if we can get it started and get it moving, um, I believe we can get it done. But we have to make sure we understand that the American justice system, when it works, is a pretty good system, but we need it to work for everyone. We need it to work in the US for everyone, and it doesn't, it doesn't. But we have to keep pushing. We just have to keep going. I don't know what else to do, except to keep doing it. Yeah, uh, and just, uh, you're right, you're totally right. We've got to keep going and, and uh, uh, sometimes it's difficult. And, and for those of, of you from lawyers and activists and campaigners who've stood right from the beginning till now still doing the same thing, um, you know, salutes to you because it's a difficult thing uh, to continue to do so. Uh, I was going to say that- But you know, miracles happen. Yeah, they do. Miracles happen. They do. Miracles happen. Mohammedu's getting out. You just can't give up because you never know that the next day something wonderful will happen. And lawyers are not burdened by what's happened in the past. We are, we are, in, we are the elements of change. That's what we do. And we have to remember that we have the power to change always. Thank you. That's a beautiful message. Sorry. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm sorry, I'm very afraid to butt in. I've got to go, unfortunately. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you to you and to all the rest of the panel. It's lovely to see Nancy and Steve and Mohamedou. And um, uh, yes, apologies that I have to leave a little early. No, that's fine. Thank you very much for being with us and thank you for sharing your thoughts. And again, congratulations. And I hope the film does even better uh, at, at the Academy Awards and elsewhere. And it really does become a conduit in changing this conversation. Thank you very much for joining us this evening, Kevin. Thank it's been a pleasure. Much. Good night. Good night. Hope to see you. Um, the next question uh, is, for, is for Steve, um, and it's something that I, would, I did want to ask myself, but um, uh, Idris Sufi is asking, he says, Salaam alaikum and hello, Steve. As a convert myself, I'm interested in your conversion to Islam. What is it you see in Islam? God bless you and everyone. It just, it's, uh, you know, it started with hearing the call to prayer, like obviously that touched my heart for sure. You know, and then uh, it's it's like a straight path, and it's you know it's between you and Allah, and uh, you get what you deserve. You know, but that's a big big thing to me. It just it just makes a lot more sense than that. You know, I was raised a Christian, and there's a, a lot of uh, contradiction in there that did not make sense to me. And you know, Islam to me kind of cleared that up. So, thank you, Steve. Thank you for, for, for sharing that with us. Um, th there's a, a question by 
uh, former, uh, well, I'm sorry, Tarek. Tarek is a former Guantanamo prisoner and a dear friend. Um, unfortunately, he's asked, he's asked Kevin a question, but Kevin has gone. So um, we'll have to do that somehow in the future, somehow. Um, I'd like to uh, begin. Is this Tarek? That's Tarek, yes, Tarek. Yeah, big shout to you, Tarek. Love <laughs> you, man. You've been hiding. <laughs> Yeah, um, there's a lot of faces and names I'm seeing, and please forgive me, and I'm not I'm not able to respond to everything very as quickly as I could. I saw uh, the 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 name of Major Todd Pierce. The Major Todd Pierce is a U.S. military defense lawyer for one of the cases in Guantanamo, who I've spoken to many times, and uh, he's you know he's one of those wonderful attorneys um, who campaigns, uh, who have campaigned for his clients uh, arduously and, and diligently that uh, Nancy was speaking about. So as I'm seeing these names come up. It's just, uh, it's very heartening. So please, as I said to everybody, do take a look at that letter that we wrote, that joint letter, it's from the prisoners themselves, from former prisoners who are also authors. Um, take a look at that, it's in the, it should be in the, in the chat. Uh, the letter in the New York Review of Books, we've got uh, to get uh, people in power to see this. And, and ultimately, I mean, Nancy, here's a question, something that I've thought about, and I thought about this particularly because there are a couple of former Guantanamo prisoners now who've come out like uh, Mohamedou and uh, Mansour, who's also joined us, Salaam Aikam Mansour, um, this evening. Uh, I, I've thought about how, does, how do people in power in America hear our voices? I did once meet with uh, Asa Hutchinson, who's the former undersecretary for, for, uh, for the Homeland Security. And when he heard from me and some of the former Guantanamo prisoners, he actually in private said, we're sorry for what happened to you. That was the first time any official uh, American had ever said anything. Do you think it would be possible at any point for Congress to hear our voices. Do you think that's that's asking too much? Well, there are members of Congress who would hear your voices, um, but whether Congress as a whole would, um, I don't know. I think um, I think people's attitudes change when they get to know people individually. Um, I think I agree with Kevin that movies are really, although I love Mohamedou's book and I love his new book, um, I think that movies reach many more people and that it gets people talking and they learn. Uh, people talk to Steve, Steve tells people things. We have these kinds of, of shows all over. I mean, I'm doing these two or three times a day um, and there are people hearing about them and we all have to be involved in talking to our representatives, our senators, um, you know, that, that's how the US works. You go to your congressman or congresswoman and you start talking to them um, about what is important. And I don't know when Congress will ever hear that. The US has troops in 150 countries around the world on the ground. Um, we are really a very militaristic country. Uh, so you have to start there and pull back. Um, but we, we, can do, we can do it. I believe we can get Guantanamo closed and get the people who are there out of, the, out of there. If they can't be charged in a US court under US rules, probable cause, then they simply have to be released. End of story. Thank you, Nancy. Thank That's you for that. the law. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Um, a question for Mohamedou says, and, and, I, and of course, I guess this didn't come in the film either. We didn't really see it happen. Um, 
but how did you feel? What was what was your feeling when you when you arrived back in Mauritania? Tell us that day, the day of your release. What was your day of release like? I first Mu'adham, I didn't feel but pain and suffering during that, you know, very long flight. It was so much painful. You know, because I have sciatic nerve, they strapped me on a chair and they blindfolded me and they put stuff on my ears. And I don't remember any of the year. Just pain, just pain. And when I arrived, I felt pain like landing. It was, I think, five past 2 p.m. I saw the watch, the big watch on the plane, you know, they had a watch, some. And when they opened like the gate, because it was like a logistic plane, airplane, I saw the color, the palette of Mauritanian color. And then my pain went away. And then I, they took all the chains, everything. And then I just walked, you know, on the tarmac and I saw like some Mauritanian civilian and uh, the uh, UK, the US ambassador, he was there. I, I knew it was a US official, but I didn't know who he was. And then uh, I said, US ambassador, he went away. He didn't say, Salaamu Alaikum. I went to him and I say, hi. And then I my hand, I shook my hands to him. He said, "Welcome home." And then they took me to a room waiting for a car, and I saw Al Jazeera Channel News. That was the first time in more than 15 years, one five years, that I saw Al Jazeera Channel in Arabic. You know, and then I know I was in Mauritania. They gave me a cup of tea. And I can tell you, but I don't want to say this. I want to make a comment. And I want to say that American justice system is not perfect. It's very flawed. Because if, you, if you're like uh, accused of terrorism as a Muslim or Arab, almost 100% that's not perfect. And I have no chance in an American court. Because the, the whole constitution is it's well they did they meant well. Because they said a jury of your peers. I have no peers in the US. No peers, because no one knows me. No one can relate to me. No one, if they read where I went, where, uh, where I grew up, it's all strange, it's all doesn't make sense to anyone in the US. And uh, and uh, and all I want to say is just. I'm so glad to, I don't even say to have gone to Guantanamo Bay to know beautiful people like you guys, like Nancy and like her colleagues and friends and to know that God, you know, has created, you know, such beautiful people, you know, and I always think you are a mercy to the whole world. And I think we are embodying that mercy, you know, to the whole world. And thank you again. So, so this is a beautiful, beautiful statement. 
I mean, I, I just got to say to you, when, when you were saying this thing about a jury of my peers, I thought about that so much because how often is it that people even have an, an inkling, even in the normal life where they live in, where they so could be disconnected. But here, nobody knows the Guantanamo story except those who have been there. Nobody knows it. So how could you, and, and who could know from, um, from anybody else what that kind of life, it's, it's nothing. It is, it's incomparable to any uh, prison system that exists on, even in the US. Though it, they're operating under the same premise, um, just basic rights uh, are, are a privilege in Guantanamo. I remember, I'm sure you're gonna remember this, right? Toilet paper, toilet paper was a privilege. Anything more than you know, having a whole roll of toilet paper in your cell was a privilege. Three, there's one guy, Tarek knows, Tarek knows this very well, who's here with us. He had a, he had a fight with one of the soldiers there and that soldier actually came here to visit me and they met, it was amazing. But they fought over toilet paper because the discussion was, is it three sheets of the toilet roll or is it three wraps over the hand of the toilet roll? And they fought over this. So guys, you've got to understand in a place where toilet paper is a privilege, um, you're never going to come across anything like Guantanamo elsewhere from, from the US system. And, and the other thing I'm going to say to Mohammed is this, you know, when people ask me, they ask me all the time, have you ever been to America? Or they say, would you ever go back to America? I said, I've never been to America. America has been to me. <laughs> the majority of the prisoners there, America has been to us. And we've seen a side of America, even America doesn't know exists. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm just going to say that I think we've, we've come to an hour and a half and everybody sat through and I know it's difficult. It's the Friday night. It's the time that some people should be, you know, you know, wanting to get ready for, for you know, Friday night with the family and stuff like that. And everybody has given that up for this evening. It's been a wonderful event. I know that you, Mohamedou, um, and uh, Steve and Nancy and Kevin and everybody else connected to the film have been doing this repeatedly. Um, and I can only thank you because this is, as I said, I, I believe as somebody has been campaigning against Guantanamo for 15 years, this is a watershed moment. Uh, this film is a watershed moment and I think it can do a, and is doing a great deal of good. Uh, apologies to all those people who I couldn't answer. Um, I'm just going to leave a last word to each one of you, each one of you guys, and then I'll, I'll, I'll say our goodbyes uh, to everybody for this evening. So we'll start off with you, Steve, if you could say something first. Oh, well, before we do that, let's say, Salaam alaikum, Ahmed. 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 Hey, Ahmed's a drummer. <laughs> yes, yeah, Steve. So if you can, if you can, uh, if you can give us your any final words you got for us, bro. Uh, well, thank you for having me on here, and yeah, I just, yeah, uh, Mamadou, thank you for the friendship and everything, and having us on, you know, and Nancy, you're a hero also, and uh, I apologize to you, Mozam, uh, about what you went through also, and uh, hopefully we we'll keep fighting the good fight and knock uh, Guantanamo Bay out of the park, you know. Thank you, Steve. I mean, and uh, there's nothing for you to apologize for, as, as, as we will all say that, uh, you know, there were people there who mistreated us uh, and there were people who treated us really well. And those who treated us well, um, you know, you, you, you guys, for me, at least, are the reasons uh, that uh, my heart isn't filled with bitterness towards the United States of America. You guys did that job. You, you soldiers did it. And not the government, not the military, 
but you did it. And I want you to remember that. Um, Nancy, uh, any parting words for us? Well, first, thank you also for having me. Um, I know Cage has been around since the very beginning, the very beginning of this. And um, I appreciate that. Uh, this is uh, one of many struggles I've been involved in in my adult life, but I've been fighting the government since I got arrested when I was 17 years old. Um, and it's the only thing I know to do. We just keep doing it um, and we keep uh, moving forward. We are going to get Guantanamo closed. Um, we're gonna work on the American justice system, try to make it fair for everyone. It's not fair for many of my other clients who are in the United States. Uh, so we, ju we just keep going. You know, We are all one people uh, around the world and we have to stand together, fight together, love together and make peace together. Thank you, Nancy. That's a beautiful, beautiful message. And I hope that at some point in the future, we can have you again, uh, just to talk about your other work because it's, it's really fascinating and your other clients, especially in Guantanamo. Sure. Thank you for that, Nancy. Uh, and the, the last word, of course, to Mohamedou, um, who I will say to everybody before you, you go, just, just bear in mind, there are different aspects of life after Guantanamo uh, that prisoners suffer. There are some prisoners who are held in prison, sent to prison straight from Guantanamo, like um, uh, the Yemenis. There's about 18 Yemenis in prison in the United Arab Emirates. There are others who are in, placed in places where they can't tra travel, where they are sent to um, uh, places like Kazakhstan, where, where the situation is so difficult, so terrible. One of the prisoners ended up dying. And you may also have heard that our friend and brother and former prisoner uh, died a couple of weeks ago in Mauritania when he was resettled, Lutfi bin Ali. And may Allah subhanahu wa accept from him and forgive his sins and enter into Jannah and Firdaus al-Ala. And that was in Mauritania. He was trying to get from there to Tunisia, his homeland. Uh, so bear in this mind that uh, Muhammadu also, though his son is there with him, um, is not able to travel to the land where his son lives and is indeed a citizen. I think he's. Uh, they live in 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 Germany and they are uh, American citizens. So he's still unable to travel. He's still unable, as you heard from him, unable come to come to the to the country where his film, uh, where the director of his film is, is and the, the main actor, or some, one of the main actors has invited him. He's unable to come to this country for no, for no crime. He, he's committed no crime. In fact, he's, been, he's had a crime committed against him. Uh, so life after Guantanamo doesn't end with, free, with, with release from Guantanamo. It's important you understand this. Uh, so please, the final word I leave with Mohammed, and I'm sure he's gonna make us smile before he does that. Uh, I hate to say, Anything after what you said beautifully, we just like pray on the soul of uh, Lutfi bin Ali, who, uh, who, uh, who was denied medical treatment. And uh, unfortunately, we know from the leak through the uh, German press that American embassy in Waukeshott sought is seeking to deny former detainees, in my case, me, uh, medical treatment outside this country. And uh, yes, like Nancy said, the struggle continues and, uh, and we all should not let go until Guantanamo is closed. Guantanamo because it's an insult, it's an insult to American, decent American people and it does not belong into a democracy. It belongs to a dictatorship. And 
We must end indefinite detention. We must end people being taken, detained because of their opinion. People go to Europe, Muslims go to America, to Europe because of freedom of speech. They find themselves in prison. That's very shameful. And uh, I pray and that this ends and people enjoy freedom everywhere. And thank you very much for having us. That's my pleasure. And that's a beautiful uh, message for the end. Um, again, I'm going to say once more before we finish, if you haven't seen the film yet, please do so. It comes out on the 1st, I think on the 1st of April, uh, I think on Amazon and across other media platforms in the UK. Um, read the book, read Mohammed's book. It's called Guantanamo Diary. There's, a, there's two versions. There's a redacted version and an unredacted version. Uh, you want to go for the latter, not the former. Uh, and finally, again, I say it again, please do share the letter that you'll find in the, um, uh, in, in, in the chat. It's an important letter. It's been published in uh, the prestigious New York Review of Books. Uh, it should be, and it can be um, implemented by the, by the US presidency. Uh, Nancy has, has mentioned all of those different aspects of it. Those who are cleared for release are still in Guantanamo, six of them. Those forever prisoners, it's a concept that nobody understands. Um, uh, you're either charged or you're not. Uh, and those who are charged under the military commission system, a system that couldn't be applied anywhere, except on Guantanamo, uh, they should have the law applied to them like everybody else. So thank you very much, uh, everyone, for joining us this evening. And uh, it's uh, goodbye for me. And assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh to all of you and all of our guests. Thank you very much. <laughs>